Hello and welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music gear. I'm your host, Hillary Jones. So in my gear world, I have been recently on the hunt for a super easy to use drum machine. And I, you know, I've had several drum machines over the years. I think the first one was like a boss doctor rhythm in high school. And, you know, the problem I've had basically since then is that I can never really wrap my head around sequencing. Like I can make the sounds, maybe record a pattern, but I can never figure out how to sequence patterns together. It's like, I don't know, I get some sort of blockage in my brain. I don't know what it is. I got really excited a while back and got an MPC 500 because I wanted to do some sampling and I just never learned how to use it. Just didn't. (laughs) I sold it. And then I bought an Akai XR20, which is basically a very simple hip-hop-oriented drum machine without sampling, and couldn't figure that out very well either. And I got a Roland JDXI synth that also has sequencing, and guess what? Couldn't figure that either. So, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's a real issue for me. So in my search, I was basically looking for the easiest possible thing to use and also wanted something that I wouldn't like get sick of the sounds because I wasn't totally sure the direction I wanted to use this for. It was more like I want to find something that is like I get the workflow but can use it for a lot of different things if I wanted to. So after searching for a few weeks, getting some like really good recommendations from listeners in my Instagram stories, I landed on the Novation Circuit Rhythm. Shout out to listener Matt who recommended it. So thanks, Matt. The, the circuit rhythm is a sampler and a sequencer in the Novation circuit kind of lineage. And the thing that really drew me to the circuit was that folks consistently talk about how intuitive it is to use and that to me is connected to the fact that it has no menu at all, <laughs> which is extremely appealing to me. And as a sampler, I can use whatever sounds I want. Um, and it, you know, it might not be fancy like a Roland MC 101 or an Electron or something like that, but I don't really need anything fancy. And honestly, if I had something fancy, I probably wouldn't be able to use it. Here we are. So <laughs> I've only had it for like two days so far and I haven't been able to use it too much, but it's already been a lot of fun and much easier and less intimidating to dig into as someone who doesn't spend as much time in that world. So, you know, I've, I've learned pattern sequencing, um, right. I still have to learn it, but I'm, I'm getting there, but I've already, you know, further ahead with this in basically two days than I have been with any of the other things that I've tried in the past. So I'll report back when I get to use it more. I'm sure it will appear on Instagram at some point. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> I, I, I feel good about it. It, it's, if anything, it is a good light show. It's very pretty. <laughs> All right. So today's guest is Rosie Varela of the El Paso bands Eep and the Rosie Varela Project. And she wears like 10 hats. So in addition to being a rad musician in a shoecase band, in a dream, I guess, a avant pop band as well, she also co-owns a studio and a record label. As a 54-year-old woman who claims a number of identities, she has like a, a lot of great insight into both the po- past and the future regarding the way her identities intersect with music. Uh, experiences in the studio and also on stage. And so I think you're really going to enjoy hearing her story. It was a a real good one. Uh, But first, before we do that, of course, we want to thank this episode's sponsors. So first up is Earthquaker Devices, who spend their days in Akron, Ohio, cranking out 
great pedals for you and me. They also make great content, such as uh, Ariana Powell shredding it up, a large amount of Afternees content, a hilarious fake lawyer ad. They had a giveaway and a chance to grab a terminal in support of Ukraine. Plus, keep your eyes peeled because it looks like they might be teasing a new release. So if you went in on that biz, check out EarthquakerDevices.com, sign up for the newsletter, go to their website, check out their pedals. There's just, they have so much to give. Check it out. Up next, we have Stompbox Sonic. Stompbox Sonic provides musicians with an extensive tonal palette for auditory exploration. Specializing in effects pedals, they offer a curated collection of companies large and small, some locally crafted, some assembled from around the world. Adam and Jen have been helping musicians and sound-based artists find their sound since 2009. By working collaboratively through one-on-one consultations, they do more than sell you a pedal. They ignite the creative spark to bring your music to life. Whether you play guitar, bass, trumpet, harp, roads, circuits, bent, speak and spell, whatever you want, Stopbox Sonic will work with you to find the right effect to fit your product project. So I popped up to Boston actually a couple of weeks ago to hang with Adam and Jen and had a delightful time. They were so kind. And process-wise, basically, I shared a few pedals I was interested in trying that I knew that they had. And they set those up for me in addition to sharing a few others that they thought I might like based on you know my requests and what they sort of already knew about me. And guess what? I actually ended up with one of their suggested pedals rather than one I had planned on. And actually, I had it narrowed down to three pedals, two of which were ones that they had suggested and not that I had I'd I'd picked. So they're good. They're real good. Uh, They'll help you find what you need. And, you know, I met them in person because they're only an hour and away. But, you know, if you aren't nearby, they do virtual consultations uh, as well. And they will play the gear for you and you can listen to it. Um, And I did one of those and that was super fun too. Anyway, they're super sweet people with a great selection. So you should probably just uh, check them out at stampboxonic.com. Last but not least, thanks to Holcomb Guitars. Nick Holcomb builds beautiful custom guitars to your specifications and has a mobile guitar setup as well. And that means he will come to your house in Rhode Island or Massachusetts, either fixing your guitar on site or picking it up and dropping it off when he's done. And uh, that is super convenient. And Nick does that for you. And, uh, you know, he's set up, prepared, modified tons of my own instruments. And uh, I, I trust him to do a good job. He's a good person. He uh, also is in the process of hiring, so if you are looking for someone uh, for maybe getting into guitar repair or becoming a luthier, and you're kind of want to dip your toe in, he is a he might he might be willing to work with you and uh, help doing some training. Obviously, you have to have some sort of ability to do something moderately with your hands, but I I think is willing to do some training as well. So definitely uh, check out. Nick at HolcombGuitars.com or follow him on Instagram at HolcombGuitars. All right. As always, you can follow along with Midriff Between Episodes on Instagram and Facebook at Midriff Podcast. With that, let's get into my interview with Rosie.
Rosie, welcome to Midriff. Thank you so much. It's so great to be Yay. here and to be able to talk about you know, my journey in music, talk about gear, all that fun stuff. It's been a long journey for me. So I, I think I, I, it's it's nice to kind of go back and reflect on this because I've been playing music since, playing instruments since I was about seven years old and mm-hmm. writing songs since I was about eight. And so, Whoa. Um, yeah, it was, it's been a lifelong kind of thing just to, to be fascinated by it and um, kind of went through all the the, you know, ins and outs of life to find myself in my 50s, you know, finally doing what I really wanted to do. So it's been really a great journey. I'm a singer songwriter. And I, um, I always like to say I paid my dues in my 20s and 30s and 40s. <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's really funny when you're when you're younger, you you, um, you kind of take what you can get. So I, you know, I was a young mom, I, I, uh, I got pregnant at 17. And I spent a lot of mm-hmm. years raising my son. And so my musical life at that time was singing backup and doing keys in cover bands. And mm-hmm. and so that was like kind of the place I was for really, you know, playing state fairs and all that kind of stuff yes. for many, many years, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, in the meantime, I just was like so curious about, you know, doing more in music, right? You know, I was writing songs, but I was just too, I don't know if it was timid or what, but it seemed like I didn't really have the opportunity to mm-hmm. to really develop, you know, and, and to develop and learn what I wanted to learn. But at Do any you, rate, I'm kind of going. Can off. I ask a sure. Can I ask a question about that? Sure. Do you think that that was because you just were like you didn't have the time for it? You were intimidated. Other people in the band were taking up that space, or what? What do you think that oh, was about? Oh heck, yeah. You know, see, you know, when, it, <laughs> all of the above, <laughs> all of the above, all of it, because you know how it, basically how it was. And this is what we were talking to, like late '80s, early '90s. Mm-hmm. Seriously, I, I now when I go back to think about the cover bands I was in, it was I was usually on, the only female in the band, except mm-hmm. for one band, and it was I always kind of fit in where they thought they could use me. So sometimes it would be backup vocal, sometimes we'd be playing bass, sometimes we'd be playing keyboards, whatever it was that I could fit in, and it always kind of felt like you know a very supportive role to the Mm -hmm. guys, you know, so there was never really even like that opportunity to break into, hey, you know, until towards the end, you know, I started writing a little bit more and kind of being a little more assertive. But yeah, it can be really, you know, when you're a young woman, especially it can be an intimidating place. And it can also be, I hate to say it, a dangerous place. You know, Mm -hmm. I I was, I I can't tell you how many times I was harassed. I was sexually assaulted or they tried to sexually assault me at an audition. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. It was, I, I'm not proud to say, but I beat the heck out of somebody with his own rolling keyboard. And I was like, oh and I God. got away. So, <laughs> so, you know, after a while, you just, wow. you know, but the thing is, that was actually a good experience in the end. And it's a long story, but like, but in the end, it was that I realized very quickly, you know, what, how to read people how to mm-hmm. read people's intentions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so in some ways, I became very picky about what I was doing in music, which reduced the amount of music I was making, unfortunately. That makes sense. You know, but now, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, it, it seems like a relatively short journey, but when I was uh, 51, I started this journey here in El Paso, Texas to, to kind of find my place, you know, to kind of find a studio that I could 
record at and and find people that I could trust, which is also a journey when you're working with producers as a woman. Everyone has their own idea of what a producer is based on producers that have come before. So, uh-huh. <laughs> so you're going to meet the crazy Phil Spector types. You're going to meet, uh-huh. you know, the Steve Albini types. You're going to meet all mm-hmm. kinds of different people. And and um, and it was really interesting to, to kind of find my place finally at Brainville Studio with Ross Ingram, who has turned out to be my mentor, my bandmate, and... And he is teaching me audio engineering, production. I'm producing, I co-produce my, this record that I just finished of my solo work, which is <laughs> finally, you know, it's kind of, yes, it's very, very exciting you know? <laughs> to be 54 <laughs> and awesome. still, and feel, I feel like I'm 17 and this should have been what I was doing all along. That's amazing. It's so fun. Amazing. It yeah. is well, fun. It's, I, I love that you're like, just like. You can see you're like lighting up just talking about it, which is so cool. Yeah, and then we started a we started a label because I was we were doing all this production, and I mm-hmm. the way I learned was I'd meet a you know one of my best friends is a great singer songwriter named Sarah Rebecca, and I wanted to record something with her, so I would pay for her recording, mm-hmm. and I would hire I hired a producer to help produce her, and and that was at Brainville and. During these these sponsorships that I did of other people, mm-hmm. I actually learned how to produce. So it was kind of an an odd way to learn how to do it, but it that's how it worked out, just by by helping other people out with their productions and, and making them happen. So what came out of that was the the formation of the shoegaze band Eep that I'm in. And we were we were so busy recording and doing things like that that we decided hey, maybe we need to like form a label. So we formed a record label and having that structure, it's kind of cool because we, we have set up the the schedule in such a way that we're always working on something. There's never a gap. So I, that's great. I like that. You're like, have a schedule all lined up. You're like, boop, boop, boop. We're doing this. Yep. (laughs) Oh yeah. And it's cool. And and we just, I'm just so excited. We haven't announced it yet, but we just signed our first outside our band members band. And it is a band, uh, a dream pop shoegaze band of, of, uh, five young women that are just amazing. And I am so excited. I cannot wait to to announce it and we're working on their music. And to me, it's so neat to see women that are like in their early twenties and, and see, you know, how far we've come compared to the person mm-hmm. when I saw women doing, you know, even 30, 40 years ago, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm assuming you can't really, you know, tell us the name of the band yet, but we, we can keep our eyes out for oh, that. for sure. Yeah. yeah it's, the, the announcement's <laughs> coming pretty soon. And, cool. uh, and, and yeah, I, I, you know, when you see that spark and I think that's the exciting thing too, is, is building the pipeline because my background is in a little bit of education. I, I worked for some colleges and, uh, tech and management. Mm-hmm. So building a pipeline that creates the impetus to record that creates the budget to record that yeah. has, you know, the, the systems to promote and everything that has just been as exciting as making the music. So I, I, I envision you using like, what's it called? Like agile That's or exactly something. It. To like, yeah. I was just telling Ross the other day, cause I worked at an animation college. So, and this is part of like the interesting thing about being sidetracked and not, I learned so many things 
not being in music full time that I'm using mm-hmm. now in music full time. And Agile was one of them. So yeah. basically, we use an Agile model to be able to, to organize and assess and correct and improve mm-hmm. every single every single record. The process gets, keeps getting streamlined. And the record quality, the recording quality, the way we use gear, the time management, it's... <laughs> It's really working. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought that That's up awesome. because very few people know Agile, you know, in, in, in this space, at least. And I'm like, wow. Yeah. 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 So. I love that. I love that. So because it's, I could tell that you're being very strategic about everything. And it feels like and that, now that you're telling me that background, it totally all clicks together, makes a ton of sense. Oh, totally. And, and, yeah. and I think it, it just and then my husband's in tech, you know, so he mm-hmm. runs the business end of the label and the promotional end. And Ross does the production and I'm learning production right now. Mm-hmm. And I really love that I'm learning it right now because mm-hmm. I feel like if I had learned all this in my 20s, I might not have had the perspective to kind of know everything's going to be all right and not freak out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would imagine, too, like you're able to as you're since you're newer to it you can translate a little bit too, right? Because oh, like if, sure. you're, if you were bringing somebody into the studio and they're like, I don't understand. And you're like, okay, let me, <laughs> you know, yeah, I, and I, I translate. And exactly. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, um, really what I'm, I'm thrilled about in the partnership we have at Brainville, especially with Ross Ingram. I mean, I can't say enough about the man. He's, <sighs> I get emotional. Oh, <laughs> he teaches even these young women that I'm telling you about. Giving them the freedom to say, you know, always feel free at any time to really articulate what you want, you know, mm-hmm. giving that mm-hmm. space, the patience and the voice and right off the bat, like finding out who they are, how they, how they identify gender wise, how do they, ident- how do they prefer being addressed? What is, you know, what is the pace that works for them? And what I love about having the label is, you know, the first EAP album took, I think it took us like 16 months because we were only getting together (laughs) two days a a month, you know, in the studio. You know, so we would do that. And and like in this case with these young women, they all have busy work schedules. So we can actually, you know, okay, let's just work on a song a month. When we're done, Mm -hmm. we're done. And that is something that like the usual you know, paradigm of, of running a label usually is like, oh no, we're going to bring you in here for a month. You got to get it all done or, or two, sometimes just two weeks. Yeah. So I like the fact that we can kind of take our time. And what I have found is that it's a very iterative process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when you go into, at least with my record, I come in, I always come in with songs knowing that they're not going to wind up the way I think they are. Uh And part of it is just like kind of rolling with the iterations as you're in the studio and you learn about gear, you're like, Hey, do you think we could play with this on this song? And once you start like being curious and saying, Hey, can we play with this compressor here? And can Mm -hmm. we play with these? You know, once you start doing that, your song, because I do believe that gear can have a profound impact on songwriting in the sense that it can take, it can take a very good song and make it a great song. Yeah. 
So the, just that little bit, like whatever that little thing that it needed to kind of like make it pop or whatever. Yeah. And, or, mm-hmm. and to innovate, you know, to try mm-hmm. something yep. different, you know? And, and so what I like is it seems to have made, uh, at least me as a songwriter, very elastic. I'm incredibly mm-hmm. elastic now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's cool. And I, I, I was wondering about that, too, because like the the production on your records is great. Like it's it sounds so good. Oh, thank um, you so much. Yeah, they're just so well done. And and it just it feels very cohesive, even though sometimes the songs are very disparate. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and I think some of it is like and it's interesting because you are kind of going like some of the songs are like squarely more like this is a shoegaze song, but then you have like some more like dream poppy type stuff and then some stuff that's like kind of like got more of an electronic element and like all of this stuff. And so I feel like it's it, whatever is happening there, like the layering and the what whatever's happening across the records, it, it's very clearly very intentional and uh, aesthetic or I guess like, yeah, it just it sounds it sounds like everything was done very on purpose. <laughs> and it's very interesting because it's like, especially with Eep, you mm-hmm. couldn't have found a band that w- is more different. Every, every person in Eep is, uh, we're all very different ages, mm-hmm. ranging from uh, 28 up to 54. Mm-hmm. And as I was uh, building this band, you know, uh, first of all, kind of, I guess the word is giving myself permission to form a band. That was Mm -hmm. a big process to say, okay, I'm going to go and find the local musicians that I think are really kind. That was always the first thing, very kind, (laughs) patient, and interesting. Because shoegaze really isn't a thing here. It's not not Mm. very popular. So Mm -hmm. I knew I wasn't going to be able to, like, find shoegaze musicians per se right but I went and 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 one of our one of our guitars will say I stalked him for about a year and a half but uh, on some of these musicians I got the the very best of the best that I knew mm-hmm. technically were were curious and that were doing some innovative things but also that they had very different influences than mm-hmm. I or Ross or so we have influences that range from you know like progressive the blues jazz uh math rock, you know, mm-hmm. post rock, all that kind of stuff. And Ross, Ross and I were the ones that were more versed in shoegaze. So I think having the the differences in a strange way made it more co- cohesive because mm-hmm. it is our interpretation of shoegaze. It's it's the songs being serviced through the lens of shoegaze and dream pop. Yeah. So the cool thing is that everybody is so like we don't have an, any any ego, so when we come in Pretty much, you know, somebody will come in and put in down their parts on a song and we use their parts. We, we trust them to write what they. And so as a result, the mixing process winds up being a big part of the creative process. Mm-hmm. The song gets mm-hmm. carved, kind of carved out more during that process, which yeah. is me and Ross for the most part, you know. Yeah, it has been cool. And, in, and on this, this solo record, it was very interesting because I invited my band members to kind of help out too, you know, for some of the fuller arranged songs. But mm-hmm. there came a point where everybody was getting exposed to COVID. Oh, can't make it. My friend got, you know. So I was like, all right, you know, it was really a blessing because it was like, you know what? I was going to have so-and-so work on these guitar parts because he's just really good. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to do this myself. And um, I wound up taking some chances, you know, because of necessity. And I actually am really grateful that that happened. 
That's yeah. cool. Yeah, I, it's it sounds like it kind of opened things up a little bit for you to be able to like make some decisions on your own a little bit, maybe. Yeah, well, it was like more like I had decisions about the songs, but I kept the parts. The parts exactly. I kept hearing yeah. them through. Oh well, I know this person's style. They'll sound great here, you know. So <laughs> I was kind of uh-huh. being an arranger in that sense. But I think mm. when when you're left on your own devices, and and Ross was really encouraging. He's like, just do it. You know, you you can do this, and not getting in my own head about it was really great. I just like, okay. And I think this record kind of let me out of my cage. This was the record Mm -hmm. that did it, you know? Can you explain for folks a little bit about the sonic differences perhaps between your, your new record, the Rosie Varela project is what you're calling it. Right. Yeah. And then, and then Eep. Yeah. So Eep is, is definitely like eclectic shoegaze. It's it, it range. It, it has, and, that band is influenced a lot by, you know, bands that came before in the first wave of shoegaze, like, you know, My Bloody Valentine, Slow Dive, Lush, and The Verve was a big, a big uh, influence mm. for me in that band and in, in, in the Eep sound as well. So, so there was definitely like the loud, layered, ethereal, full-bodied, you know, sound. And yeah. in Rosie Varela Project, I was really looking deeply at my influences and who I also like dream to sound like and to explore mm-hmm. not so much to copy but just to kind of say okay how would so so on rosie varela project we call it avant pop which i never knew the term before yeah until this record and i'm really glad to learn it because avant pop is a lot of the artists that i admire a lot like tori amos Laurie Anderson, um, mm-hmm. Fiona Apple, even they consider Joni Mitchell avant pop, mm. David Bowie, Peter Gabriel. So yeah. we're looking kind of at the, you know, I consider all those because uh, those are the big influences for me from the seventies and eighties. Were mm-hmm. were these? Um, Kate Bush is another one. Um, I was going to mention it, but I'm, <laughs> yeah, Kate <laughs> I was Bush I was like, and Kate Bush. And but, Kate yeah. Bush. <laughs> I like that it came back to it anyway. <laughs> yeah. You can't Perfect. avoid Kate Bush and Avon Pop. You can't avoid it. But and, and it was really interesting because the songs, as we got into the studio, especially when when left to my own devices on like five of the songs, I could mm-hmm. notice that naturally the sound profile that I was looking towards was kind of coming from these unusual, experimental sounding, ethereal sounding, soul kind of sounding, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it was just kind of a thrill to find my voice in that way because Eep is, is wonderful and it's layered and it's it's an exercise in, in arranging, actually. It's a really good mm-hmm. exercise in that. And this one, there's some songs that have very few tracks. You know, um, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a few that it just really comes down to the emotional performance. You know, mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. I'm talking about some, some big things. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, uh, it was good to be alone in, in the studio with Ross because some of these songs were hard for me to get through. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, it, are, is that m- more, would you say, because a lot of the folks that you're mentioning are very like piano or synth based more than perhaps like maybe what you're doing in Eep, which I know you do some synth stuff in there too, maybe, but mm-hmm. do you feel like, or is it more like less guitar based, would you say? I felt like some songs were definitely less guitar based. There was one, there's one called the, the title uh, track, What Remains, that originally I had you know, done the demo with four or five different guitars 
and used, mm. I had used a new pedal and I was really excited. It was uh, the Ravish sitar pedal, oh, which cool. mm-hmm. is an amazing sustain, you know, and, and, and mm-hmm. really interesting layers. And so we tracked it all with all those guitar sounds and it was just really this full thing. And the more I listened to it, I mean, we did some fun stuff. We took some of those, <laughs> we took some of those like Ravish sitar long sustained guitar tracks and we would like, we were running them through a dweller, you know, and, and, oh, cool. and yeah. we were running them through, you know, doing some phase stuff with it, playing on the board mm-hmm. with it, you know, having a lot of fun on the console and, um, and doing a lot of droney stuff on that song. But what wound up happening, which is so interesting, is the more we got into it, the less I was feeling it, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that's a really what I learned a lot on this record was, you know, slap the paint down and then at a certain part, start kind of scraping the paint away and seeing what wants to come out. And yep. so what wound up, you know, I, we, we took out a bunch of the guitar and I was like, you know, I think I'd like to play some Rhodes on this. Mm-hmm. So I played a very mm-hmm. bluesy Rhodes part, brought in uh, our drummer from Eep, who was a jazz drummer. And, and I said, hey, you know, can you lay down some, some jazz here? And he just did a brilliant, you know, interpretation for very minimal. Mm-hmm. And so this song became minimal and yet it's reached its potential with less, you know, but it was just the right kind of sound. And we did keep some of the drones, but it was a matter of placing them in the right place and, and not making them the focal part of the song, you know? Um, Right. Right. But yeah, we do, we have on this record, we used definitely used uh, synths and we use guitars in a different way, you know? Mm -hmm. And I played flute all over the place on this, you know? Yeah. So, so that's kind of my next question related to that. Cause it like, so you've mentioned, so you play guitar, you play synth, uh, bass, or piano, yeah. ba- bass, flute. flute. Obviously, you sing. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else? <laughs> Whatever sure there I can is. get my hands, I, I yeah. play things I don't know how to play. So that's, yeah. <laughs> so that's I what saw I something love. where I saw uh, something on your Instagram that was like Ross was talking about your kalimba part or something like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I played the thumb piano at the end of a yeah. song. And then the cool thing about that was like, okay, making up something to this because I wrote a song that has an interesting like five, eight, six, eight change, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it had an interesting rhythm. So I'm like, okay, let me just make something up. And then we went into, and this is the fun part, is that like, it's like being in a, in a toy store. We take that part on the kalimba and Ross starts playing around with it in Melodyne. So we start doing some things, you know, in, in Pro Tools that creates, we, we like creating samples and we like creating loops a lot. And so a lot of times if there's a neat part and we could just kind of up the weirdness. Yeah. <laughs> Always so, good. Yeah. So what I found is that, you know, on this record also is it kind I kind of found that like, it doesn't really matter what we use, you know, it's, it's more like, because a lot of times people have this attitude that, oh, got to use the top of the line stuff and got to, you know, to get this sound. And, mm. you know, in our studio, we keep a collection of uh, Topo Chico mineral water bottles around. We, we have like six or seven in the, in the, in the studio because, you know, we've used that for percussion and we know yeah. how to play with it. So it's kind of like we keep all kinds of weird stuff around and then we have the outboard gear and then we have the pedals and we have the synths and we have all these wonderful things to kind of like complement everything. Right. Right. Yeah. You can kind of create something new with, with whatever like percussion or extra sound you have and then like throw in some stuff on there and see what, see what comes up. Exactly. And, yeah. and, 
the interesting thing about the project, because part of the project is doing a record and a full length record. Part of the project, my project's mission is to also invite musicians I've never worked with before to record mm-hmm. a single with me. And oh, so cool. mm-hmm. uh, one of the singles we're working on right now involves someone coming in playing the saw. I mean, Javier Martinez yeah. in El Paso, you know, playing the saw, working with mm-hmm. Gina, who is goes by amphibian dance in El Paso, who's this very experimental indie pop uh, performer. And, and just kind of seeing what everybody else brings to it. And mm-hmm. that to me has just been invigorating. It's, I don't think I'll ever get tired of that collaborative process. That's awesome. Do you, do you have uh, plans for like, like how, I guess my question is how you are recreating this stuff in a live setting or is it mostly going to be a recorded project? Well, I, I think uh, Rosie Varela Project, because we do so much sampling and I'm, I'm not really at this point, haven't been using Ableton or anything like that to trigger, mm-hmm. you know, live samples. Mm-hmm. So at this point, I'm kind of happy exploring just the studio aspect for Rosie Varela Project. I, yeah. A couple of years ago in 2019, I because my, you know, I have so much support. I feel so blessed. And the support I have from my my husband and my family, I wanted to know what it was like to throw a music festival. So we threw one. And we threw a 14-hour um, acoustic Oof. music festival with 23 different bands in it at Whoa. a farm. And so um, now that I know how to kind of recreate and do sound, I'm kind of like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll, we Eve has a show coming up next month. And we're having to make those choices right now about like, okay, it's clear we can't recreate the record. So it's more like, you know, what are the best parts or how can we transform it to make it uh, an experience? Because I'm all about like Mm -hmm. the experience. And that Mm -hmm. has a lot to do with like the emotional aspect of the delivery of the songs and and, and also I'm working out the accessibility issues that I have with working live because yeah. I, I am disabled. I, I have a very limited mobility. And so I can't stand and perform. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I'm working out right now in rehearsal is basically setting up like a, I'm going to be sitting on a, on a stool with a back, you know, on stage and setting mm-hmm. up basically a tray of pedals that I can you know, work with my hands. Yeah. And, uh, and that's also, you know, that, that limits me in one sense that like pretty much when I play live, I've got to have my sound figured out, you know, I can't yeah. really, cause I can't stop playing to like hit the pedal with my hand. <laughs> you got to get real fast with the fingers at that you point. Get super fast. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you were to ask me what would be my dream inventions, for music, for me at least, mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. would be having a a blink triggered uh, pedal board. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, yes. And to have, I actually wanted. I, I may invent this myself. I, I think they might exist, but I've not been able to find one. Is a stand because of my surgeries, I, I'm not able to play um, any guitar that's uh, heavier than say seven pounds. So that limits mm-hmm. me quite a bit as far as like yep. in that particular gear space. But I, I I see those stands that they put like classical guitars on yeah. to play. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I want one, but I want one for electric guitar. Electric guitar. So I can just put that it in front of me. exist, right? I keep looking. I'm not finding it. No. So if anybody out there actually makes these or knows of them, please let People, us know. People, Listen. 
Help Rosie out. <laughs> Help the sister out. You know? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. I think the I think the accessibility thing has been really interesting for me. You know, um, mm-hmm. it also kind of in a way just I like the fact that it forces audiences to change the way they look at, you know, uh, what being a musician is. Mm-hmm. Our, our drummer, Lawrence, uh, has been blind since birth. And I constantly forget that that he has, you know, these issues. And right. I, I want to get to that point, too, where it's like, okay, I figured out my solutions, and now I can kind of push past the limitations. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if I can do that between now and the time I croak, I think that'd be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> I mean, I think that's what I and we've talked about access, accessibility a few times on the podcast at different points. And I think, you know, a lot of it is about like disability is created, right? Like it's because the environment's not there to support, you know, different needs for folks. And so, you know, figure, you know, if more people are taking that into consideration, then. then it oh, even so even something issue. as simple as venues having ramps is huge. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've gone to a venue where, you know, it was a struggle. It was a, a mm-hmm. real struggle. But, you know, I think that I just have to keep, you know, speaking up and and eventually they'll get the message, you know. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And it, and it's, you know, I think people just if you're not asking people what they need or like if you're not if you're not if you're just like talking to you and your friends and everybody is like able-bodied and like they're not you know having that as a consideration like they're just not going to think of it so yeah in part I think it's like it is it's a I think always a lot of this is about like asking people who are different from you what they need exactly not happening and being cool with it and not not Mm -hmm. making it seem like it's an imposition but just like a natural part of doing business is making sure that any person of any any kind of ability of any kind of orientation of any you just to make people feel comfortable to be a human being in the space they're in, you know? Totally. Yeah. 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 So listen up, people. Get it together. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make so me we... open up a music venue, too. Okay. Don't make oh, me do it. I, I know you'll do it. I know you'll do it. Uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, give Rosie a break, folks. Just, you know, make it work for her. <laughs> uh, so, all right. So we skipped over a little bit about your personal gear I guess we've touched on a little bit we don't I don't want to like spend too too much time because we've talked about it a little bit but like so what was your first instrument first of all it was flute flute okay cool mm-hmm. and were you taking where did you learn was flute when you're seven how does that how did that well you know up? they let us they let us you know it started out with the flutophone at five and then they let us wait what's a flutophone oh it's those that plastic you know the little plastic flutes that they give you to learn like in like a recorder a recorder that's it oh that's okay it. okay it's like a recorder i like calling it a flutophone that makes it much more dignified <laughs> yes and you know i actually feel a lot better about the flutophone now i i heard a podcast with johnny greenwood recently and mm-hmm. he said that they didn't allow him to start an instrument until he was like 11 or 12 or something like that yes i heard that podcast the one did with you gross and yes he was saying that was a fascinating like, interview yeah that he was like playing flutophone in a very classical way and I'm like I could totally see this kid doing that I could see yeah. yep and I think I think that's what it is is that I, I, I as a little girl I just wanted to make music with anything I could find and my mm-hmm. brothers are guitarists and so 
Yeah, I would kind of sneak in and try to touch the guitar, but I was way too afraid of what would happen if I dropped it or something. So I, I didn't mess yeah. with that. But flute was great to me. And and whenever you play an instrument like that, you start noticing where is flute in popular music, you know, and you, mm-hmm. that's really what I was doing as a kid was trying to find. Whenever the Jethro Tull was like. I was just, yeah, I was like, so you're just like <laughs> Jethro Tull and uh, yeah. Jethro Tull. <laughs> and I listen to a lot of jazz, you know, so, you know, yeah. listening to some of the, you know, even even Galway and, the, you know, some of these, uh, the Irish flautists were, were yeah, fantastic yeah. too. Yeah. And, and I would go, I was one of those people that would have the record. And what it's the first, the first flute solo I ever learned that was from pop music was um, Locomotive Breath. It's a Jethro oh. Tull song, and there's okay. a big, there's a big crazy flute lead <laughs> in it. So can you imagine like being nine, ten, nine or ten years old, listening oh, to it, wow. and moving the needle back to figure out every single freaking note? <laughs> I think I think it took me to high school to actually get it. You know, to get it I to where I could it. do it at the space <laughs> in the time that it, it is on the recording. So the number. Times recently that Jethro Tull and Ian Anderson have come up in my life, it's weird. I don't know why. It just keeps they I just so much to give. <laughs> I think that means that he's coming for you, man. <laughs> That's it. So I have You're gonna I, meet him one day. <laughs> I, I have a flute here and I don't know how to use it. Maybe he's gonna come over and be like, Hey buddy, get it together. You gotta learn the flute. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh so so what t- when how old were you when you started guitar? Believe it or not, I did. I started guitar after bass. I started guitar. Oh, okay. uh, I want to say I was thirty. Oh yeah, yep. And so, how old were you when you started bass? Started bass in high school, on and off, in little projects mm-hmm. that I was in, and mm-hmm. just one of those things where I, I really disliked at the time that bass was always like, oh, someone has to play bass. Yeah, yeah, relegated to the bass. Well, it's usually relegated to the person who isn't that great of a guitarist, at least Mm -hmm. in my experience Mm -hmm. when I was in in different projects as as a young person. And I was like, that's kind of a bummer. But then, I don't know what happened in my 20s. I met, oh, I know who I met. I was inspired reading some stuff from um, George Porter Jr. from The Meters, Mm -hmm. who... You know, when, when you read an interview by a bassist and then they start listing other bassists. And so I was learning about James Jamerson and, mm-hmm. you know, Carol Kay and all that. And then I was like, oh, yep. okay, bass, right on, you know. I, I guess I can you. get into this. I it can get cool. into this, you yeah. know, and it, and it actually helps you with songwriting to kind of understand, you know, yeah. the root rhythm and, and that kind of thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that, that continued through when I hit 30, I decided just to pick up a boyfriend's uh, classical guitar and just started doing that. And I will say I'm I'm like that that Dire Straits song. I'm strictly rhythm. I don't want to make it. <laughs> that was it. I don't want to make it cry or sing. So I do I do rhythm for Eep. You know I, I I basically you know craft the songs around chords. You know and but on this record uh, on the solo record I I finally playing lead guitar and I'm really happy Look about at you. that. You know but. One of the things that has come up in my style that that it was brought to my attention because someone wanted to let me know it wasn't cool. And I was like, eh, don't tell me it's not cool. I'm, I think I'm bringing guitar solos back. <laughs> bringing them back. It's about I think time, I'm bringing right? them back. And they're like, it's about time. And, and, and a good friend of mine took me aside and they said that you do realize that they're out of favor, right? You people don't people don't do guitar <laughs> solos anymore. And I said, but Eep does. And so, and so does RVP. So 
Yeah. But also, I feel like, you know, 90s are coming back. Grunge, there were definitely guitar solos in grunge. Oh, for Not sure. all the time, but there were. And I feel like, you know, yeah. Yeah. I feel like if it suits the song. Why not? That's, that's kind of like, how I feel. It's yeah. like I'm not I'm not really like I love the fact that on this record, this last record, I'm not ad- adhering to any particular style. You know, it's it's this avant mm-hmm. pop, which means I get to do whatever the heck I want to do, which nobody is nobody can tell you what to do. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So so for your current gear, so you said that you have a guitar that is that you have to have guitars that are pretty light. So is, do you have like yeah, a couple main guitars that you Yeah, I got a Dan Electro. Yeah, I got Oh, yeah, um, perfect. I, I want to say it was uh, modeled after a 669 mm-hmm. Dan Electro. And it's super light. I want to say it's nice. like six pounds. And my gear at home is incredibly basic. Yeah. I, I use uh, a Boss uh, ME80 modeler, mm-hmm. you know, just, yep. just to do my demos. Cause that's what I'm doing at home is, is just demos. Yeah. And I use a really unusual, I think it's unusual, uh, gear to record my demos with because, with you know, I, uh, so I, I use my iPad and I use GarageBand a lot, you know, and, and, yep. and I've been very unapologetic when people are like, ah, you should be using logic. You should be doing it. And mm-hmm, I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. you know, I open my iPad, I do my thing. And, um, uh, Focusrite a few years back made this dock, this iDock that you could just like slide your your iPad yeah. into, and it gives you you know two XLR outputs, two instrument outputs, and I'm like, eh, that's great. Mind you, you know GarageBand is okay, has its limitations, but just to mm-hmm. get the basic idea of a song and the basic idea of any kind of EQing or like you know verb or effects that you're looking for, you know your pedals will do yeah. that for you. So. That's what I use. And it was very affordable. It was like, I want to say at the time I bought it, it was like $129. And just like, That's okay, awesome. you know. Well, every single song on every record I've done is the demos have been done on that because it's just, I can plug and play. I can take it anywhere I want to because it's this mm-hmm. tiny little thing. And, and I take it to other people's houses and, you know, do I can set up a mobile recording rig really easily. And on the first album, it was really interesting because I had, I had that poor little machine. I had like, at that time, I think I had more than like 480 songs in GarageBand, right? Whoa. And, you know, I'm a Star Trek fan too. I'm a very unabashed Star Trek fan. And I could, I could tell the machine was like, Captain, I can't do anymore. I've done all I could do <laughs> between the iPad and the machine, right? So one day, one day I plug in to do work on this song and it start the machine, the, the little focus right thing starts smoking on me. Starts smoking. Oh, no. But then the fountain power started making this crazy sound. Crazy. And I was like, okay, maybe I should unplug it. It's gonna catch fire, you know? But but I said, no, I should record this sound before I do this. So I set up the mic and I recorded the sound. <laughs> and anybody out there, if you go to Eep's first album, uh, Death of a Very Good Machine. The title song, Death of a Very Good Machine, has that sound as the rhythm of the song. So, That's but, uh, and I, I called it Death of a Very Good Machine because it was a very good machine. And I thought oh, it was yeah. dead, you know? I but get that. That's, okay, it's all coming together. Yeah. Yeah. So now <laughs> that was the Death of a Very Good Machine. Yes. And, uh, and I was able to find a second one. But the interesting thing was, and that I had, oh, many apologies to Focus Right. It was not your fault. I think that I I opened it up. Honestly, I opened it up and it was full of El Paso sand and dirt and all kinds of stuff. Oh, no. Because I had been taking the thing out, you know, to do field recordings and stuff, right? I'm like, the poor thing just couldn't handle El Paso. (laughs) 
So I was, I'm, able to clean I, you it know, up, I'm you know? recording with the focus right right now. Are you? you know? Oh, I love focus I, right. You're doing a great job. Good. Right. Yeah, they are doing great. <laughs> I, I use their scarlet all the time. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. So I have to thank them because the demo that started Eep was a song that I wrote for my husband, and I never thought of myself as a shoegaze, you know, artist. And my husband's like, "Well, let me." Yeah, I say, "Here, listen to the song I just." And he says, "That's shoegaze." you need to go talk to Ross. I need to record this. So I'm like, okay, there I go, you know, with this, this little demo. And that started the whole thing. And, and one song became three songs, became an album, became a band, you know, and, and I thrilled, you know. That's so great. Yeah. And, you know, it's all just one little thing at a time. Yeah, you can do it in your living one room. One demo I, at a time, yeah. Exactly. You know, I, I, that's the main thing that I, I always want to encourage people. Like, it's never too late, you know. You can be... 51 years old, sitting in your living room, working on a Focusrite with your iPad, and something's going to happen that that it can be a song, it can be meeting the right people to work with, it can be a number mm-hmm. of things, but it's never too late. Hashtag thanks, Focusrite. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> they do deserve They do deserve a lot of credit in this. <laughs> Just, totally. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, so you ran a, a, a label and a studio with your husband and with your um, musical partner, Ross. And so can you talk a little bit about your roles within that? Yeah. You know, so Ross had started Brainville Studio, the first iteration of Brainville Studio about five or six years ago and moved to a new location. And when I met Ross, they'd been there maybe one or two years. <clears throat> I started doing a lot of recording there and we got to know each other and he saw my experience that I was having with working with certain producer, producers, and he was extremely encouraging in that, like, when I brought that song to him, finally, like, okay, you know, I think he knew that I was ready to experience something different. Because, you know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> when when women work with producers sometimes, you know, you'll, you'll book the studio time, the producer comes in, and they're like, play your parts, sing your parts, and then, you know, you can go away now. We're going to mix it. <laughs> You know, uh-huh. trust me, I know what this song needs and you know that kind of thing. And I still wanted to stay in the room, you know, and grudgingly, sometimes I was allowed to stay in the room during mixing and stuff. But what happened with uh, Eep, you know, was that I, I met a mentor that saw me as a peer, as an equal, and saw the value of, of what I had to contribute. So he was running that that uh, studio, and at a certain point during the pandemic, it made sense for Justin and I, because we wanted to make sure the studio would you know survive the pandemic, was to begin investing in the studio. Uh, and we, we made our investment. And so that helped with, with helping the, the cost of our recordings to go down a little bit. Right. And because I was already planning, excuse me, planning other people's productions, that's why we were kind of like, well, maybe it's time to start the label because, you know, we were doing this with our own money. So we weren't really doing it in a formal basis where we could actually enjoy the benefits of running a business like that, you know? So, so it made sense. And my husband is one of those amazing people that when he decides to do something, he finds out the best way to do it. And he finds mm-hmm. out, you know, best practices and how to do it in a way that fits the, the style of the people involved in it. So I give mm-hmm. him a ton of credit for keeping, for keeping Ogar, you know, the daily things, you know, running really smoothly. And 
the European shipments out there to, you know, the records and packing up the records and packing up the CDs and all that, you know, it's just great. Yeah. That's a lot, a lot of work. <laughs> all of it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, mm -hmm. and I, it was a big milestone for us this month. We finally were able to hire an assistant on all this stuff. So oh, it's kind wow. of like, to me, that's always like whenever you can start bringing in people to help and, and mm -hmm. paying them well, it's like, okay, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah. You know? That's awesome. Yeah. All right. So I want to scoot the conversation a little bit more specifically around any experiences that you've had around like gender, other identities that are important to you and gear and like how those things have worked for you. Like, would you say there's particular areas where you've had like m better experiences or worse experiences around identities that you have? Well, I definitely being a child that grew up in the seventies and being someone who's making music now, I can tell you that like the gender and identity divide between, I would even say 1990 and now, is huge. Mm -hmm. The last 30 years have been remarkable in the way mm -hmm. of like clearing things up. But I remember, you know, first of all, just being picked on for being a woman, you know, mm -hmm. on, on different levels in music, whether it's at a music store and they assume that you don't know anything, whether it's in a band where they assume that you're, you should be happy with your role, singing, you know, la 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 behind everybody else, you know. And Again, even in production where, honestly, I have to be honest with you, you know, recently I was, I was asked to contribute to an article about the lack of women in production. And, you know, I decided to Google inspiring quotes by female producers. And you realize that what they consider a well-known female producer is Katy Perry, who is mm -hmm. incredibly who's incredibly inspiring in what she does, but like there is not many, you know? Right. Because also one of the things that happens, I think is, is the dilution in identity. If Bjork goes into the studio and she puts out a record, you know, darn well, she produced the darn thing, right? She right. produced it. She, but there isn't that association with production. Right. So the gender identity is always that the singer is usually working for somebody else, you know, kind right. of thing. Like whoever, like Timbaland or whoever is like actually putting it together. Exactly. And, you know, you know you're yeah. just supposed to kind yeah. of stay quiet about the, the contributions that, you know, the, the women made. Mm -hmm. And I think also in the sense of the queer trans identities that are coming out in music, I am just thrilled because I don't, you know, and it's interesting now to look back and I've had many friends who were queer, gay, trans in the years that I was making music with them, but I had no idea until they had those dramatic, you know, those moments where you have to decide, am I going to exist in a lie or am I going to break out of it? Seeing now, reflecting back on the years where they had to hide, mm -hmm. I can hear the difference in their music, you know, and now... Mm. I'm just, I'm just so proud of my friends who have come out the other end and the young people that are going into the field, very confident in their, who they are, the pronouns they want to be addressed by, the, the way they want to conduct themselves and the respect that they are demanding. Yeah. It's, it's, it's wild to see how quickly things have shifted. Obviously there's a lot more to go and like, you know, obviously there's like, you know, lots of terrible, like, trans 
bans and things like that, you know, parents who are going to get arrested for allowing their child to like be on, you know, hormone blockers and things like that. It's all happening, but in a larger context, it is definitely moving in the right direction. It is. And I think I'm in that state that's going after the parents. I'm in Texas. And mm-hmm. and there is definitely, in, in certain states, still like this persecution mentality, you know, against women, against, you know, anybody who's different. And yeah. I think to myself, there will have to be, there will have to be a civil I, we're in the middle of a civil rights, you know, uh, uh, identity crisis, a reckoning. And yeah. I think it's going to have to get very serious for things to change. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. you know, yeah. it's going gonna, it's gonna to have to get serious. And also, I think the fact is, is that we can't pretend that just because we know someone who we know one person who is gay or trans, that that excuses us from speaking. Mm-hmm. Up. You know what I mean? It's like. There, I am sure that these people that are very much against some of this stuff, against, you know, allowing trans children to be trans children, you know, they've got to know somebody you they're not immune from this. You know, I think that that I I think we can no longer allow people that uh, that privilege to uh, create suffering. Yeah, I yeah, 100 percent. It's 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 shocking totally not shocking that people are, you know, (laughs) feeling like they have to have control and power over things. That's not shocking at all. It's just saddening, I guess, is my point. It's Um, an interesting, uh, you know, bringing up that idea about power and control. On this record, I explore that a little bit, you know, and I Mm -hmm. I think I had to address some of my own control issues. Mm -hmm. I think that trauma creates a trauma response of needing to control. And if I look at like society as a whole, we, this entire country was built on trauma, like from day freaking one. Mm -hmm. So when you look at like generational trauma that's happened because of that, and and then, then I'm like, okay, so the trauma response to people being different is always going to be to try to control the narrative and control, you know, who gets to exist. And that it's a very complex thing. I, I, the last song on my record is called surrender Mm -hmm. and it's about surrendering that control. Mm-hmm. That's very difficult in in the tra- mm-hmm. any in a personal trauma setting. But I imagine, like with our country and what's happening around the world, surrendering those last, you know, those last when I when I see world leaders who are still trying to control with an iron fist, I'm like, you know what? Your time is passing. You know, it's time yeah. for us to surrender to peace, and that's very hard for people to do sometimes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's a we're in a rough spot right now in a number of ways, I think. But I think recognizing the baseline from where this all came from, like allowing individual self-awareness around it and then just like cultural self-awareness around or cultural awareness around it. Yeah. Yeah. What they say about like, you know, if you want to see peace in the world, work on yourself, you know, Mm -hmm. because as as you work on it, you you continually I'm continually like finding area blind spots. You know, and as a woman, as a Latina, as, you know, everything that I identify with, there are blind spots that, that I would say form barriers against love sometimes and compassion. And, um, I've become more and more aware of them. And, uh, I can't say there's many, you know, but I, I can say that like every now and then one will, one will come to me, you know, and Mm -hmm. especially when it's someone 
like, okay, we look at someone who thinks very differently than us that has hate in their heart. And then you realize, oh my goodness. Okay. When I make fun of them and when I speak of them as being less than human, I'm also doing. And yes. that's, that's the tough part is, is how to convert those kind of thoughts to something that is um, constructive and, and promotes what we're all here to really do. And we're all here, <clears throat> at least I think so. I think we're here to support each other and, and help each other, you know, yeah. feel like, like we have more viable human beings. Well, this is a good transition, I think, into a follow-up question I have kind of about that, which is that, so you're, you're an empath and a spiritual counselor in addition to your, your work as a musician. So what role do you see music having in, in this process for you? And, and you, I guess, the, the other point of this, so I found an article that you had written about, about Star Trek <laughs> and <laughs> empathy. Uh, and I feel like this is related because it's like, as I was reading the article, basically you're talking about like how to engage in like deep listening and how to basically be more empathetic and actively with other people. And I feel like that's like, what, what do you see? What would you say is important for people in their daily lives to help like interact with other people in music, in music spaces what 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 can people do to better develop their empathy in those places? I think the biggest question, lesson that I've learned, and I've learned this from lots of people, I've learned this from my mentor, Ross, quite a bit, especially in seeing him, because he's got a 20 plus years experience as an audio engineer and producer. And what I've noticed in people who do well in music, as far as communicating in music, is before anything gets started, kind of asking questions. Like, even if it's just over a cup of coffee before you begin the process, just to kind of, hey, so what What excites you about music? Mm-hmm. What's your best musical moment? How did it make you feel? And usually in asking those questions, you quickly realize sometimes the whole thing comes out with that question, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. When you ask people, why do you make music? Or what's the best experience you've had? They will say, they'll either let you know right away about the worst experience they've had, which kind of Mm -hmm. teaches you about their trauma and what triggers them. And then when they tell you about their best experience, you see the places where they feel powerful. Mm -hmm. And music is all like, you know, when I studied Reiki, the one thing that just like really shocked me was that like, it came down to like the mechanics of, of energy that, all energy is vibration. All matter has vibration. It may be inert, but the energy is there. And Reiki kind of uses that principle to access the inner energy and in, in organic matter and the air around us and everything. Well, I think music is the same way. Mm-hmm. I think that I can hear a piece of music that may not have a single lyric and the vibration and the movement and the rhythm and the sound waves will bring me to tears because mm-hmm. there's a story there. So I think, you know, the first thing in, in being empathic for me has been just to listen to the to what people say and listen mm-hmm. to the things they don't say. Ooh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just think that people listening more and talking less would would benefit 
a lot of people. <laughs> and I'm a chatterbox, so I'm not. A, I, I I work on that no, all too. the time. <laughs> so mm-hmm. like, <laughs> but I I find people's stories so interesting, and I use it in songwriting quite a bit. You know, I, I'm a terrible mm-hmm. eavesdropper. <laughs> terrible. You know, I, I have a background also in film and screenwriting, mm-hmm. and there were times where I would just like be somewhere public and just write, just have my notebook writing down everything I'm overhearing to write, you know, material with. And I'm like, oh, that's terrible. But one of my songs on the album is is a literal eavesdrop at a grocery store. <laughs> that's great. I feel like that's such a great way to, like, get ideas for songwriting, though. Uh, I, I've been reading Jeff Tweedy's book called oh, I uh, love how, to, how to Write One Song. Yeah, I just finished it, like, last week. and And I was... I haven't written lyrics for a long, long time, so it made me think more about that. And it's such a smart way to, you know, like get, you know, peek on, you know, just peek, peek into somebody else's life. And for sure. Yeah. And that's also empathy. I think that like mm-hmm. we can train ourselves to to listen differently. Like, you know, you can have someone say the same sentence in a different in four different tones and you're going from your own basis of trauma and judgment are either mm-hmm. going to empathize or not empathize. And so yep. it's interesting to just write down the words without recording them so you don't have like the inflection and you realize that words can have so many different meanings, you know. Yeah. Cool. Well, it was it was funny. I just ran across that article and I was like, this is so interesting. Like it just <laughs> it feels like it fits into everything we're talking about even though it was about Star Trek and empathy. <laughs> well, you know, empathy has been kind of there's the way e has come together and the songs come together with Eep feels almost sometimes it almost feels kind of like otherworldly sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I know that lots of musicians, and I'm sure you've experienced this where like everybody's in the right place at the right time. And one take is all you need. And there it is. Yep. The song reveals itself to you mm-hmm. in an instant. And to me, you know, I, I always credit that to, I, I recently, wrote an essay about sorcery, but, but sorcery as like being connected to source in what you do, Mm. you know, to your source, whatever source it is that you, because, you know, a lot of people don't believe in a a higher creator, but there is a source within. And so it's interesting that like when those things happen, those instant moments of inspiration, Mm -hmm. I think we're all being sorcerers. We're just like, we're tapping Mm -hmm. into something far greater than ourselves and when mm-hmm. you tap in in a collective group like that, you you start to feel like, wow, I'm part of something really special. And when those moments happen, you you see your peers, you know, as kind of fellow alchemists. You know, we're we're, we're yeah. working something. And so that's been a lovely part of the the intuitive part of Eep has been really lovely. Really, really. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, you spent a lot of time working on this record and you're almost finishing it. So can you talk a little bit about your what you've learned from that? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think that when you're learning how to produce music and, and you're learning the gear end of it and, and engineering, it's kind of like you have these aha moments. And on this record, the aha moment for me uh, and my co-producer, Ross Ingram, was huge teacher in this, is kind of learning how to use your outboard gear 
mm-hmm. as part of a, the creative process. And we definitely, you know, we, I think on this one, I used uh, Effectron a lot. And Effectron. Effectron is kind of like a, a, distortion phasing you know it's, it's a really great time time shifter you know and so we used that as kind of like a creative tool we used the studio had had outfitted itself on um, rust gotten some new uh, compressors in and and the thing i learned was that if you get your sound like say for example you're recording drums you know he showed me how to the different drum kit setups, and that, that was really important for me to learn, uh, mic-wise. But also, you know, sometimes we don't spend enough time figuring out the sound on the outboard end. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it may take time to have your drummer play stuff over and over and over again. But figuring out the compression end of it and, if the, you know, and, and the reverb end of it as it's happening... Mm-hmm saves you a tremendous amount of time in post-production. And that's what, that was, that was like the aha moment was just realizing, okay, you can figure out your sound at this moment and not necessarily rely on, you know, because I know on certain records I've, you know, worked with like plugins and, and things within, you know, Pro Tools, Mm -hmm. we've worked with those to, to get the desired uh, effect. But mm-hmm. using outboard was really, really helpful. So that's really cool. Yeah, I feel like I, I still need to figure out compression in a real way. I feel like I'm still. I'm every still time learning. I'm just like I don't know. <laughs> it's a lot, but it's you a know, mystery. one day I'm going to understand it. And and I'm and I, one of my life goals. I know this is crazy, but I really want to build a reverb chamber one of these years. Because oh yeah. So Doesn't that cool. just seem cool? Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> yep. so that's probably what I've learned production-wise was like getting the sounds at the get-go, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and that was good. And also learning when to bring in the right person at the right time, mm-hmm. like knowing which musicians do well when they're in the studio alone with you, and which ones do better in a group. And you know, that's smart. Yeah, that's yeah. a real thing. Yeah, it like is a real the, thing, especially the group dynamic piece. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. And that's empathy gets into that, you know, and, and intuitive, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of get that feel of, OK, the right person at the right time kind of yep. thing. But uh, yeah, and, and just playing around with a lot of gear I hadn't played with before. And I'm just so glad we have synthesizers and, and yeah. just so much so many fun toys in the studio. I want to come to your studio and check it out. That sounds like a lot. You are invited. You can come come and play on an RVP single anytime you want to. Yes. I, next time I'm in the neighborhood, I'm, I'm there. <laughs> you know, I may wind up in, in Rhode Island one of these days, too. There's, I have a dear friend that I, I really want to work with that uh, has a project called Pull of Autumn, and he's in uh, Rhode Island. Oh, and cool. Yeah, super, super cool uh, shoegaze group. And uh, Oh, my gosh. I'll have to look into that. I feel oh, like yeah. I've, Daniel I've dropped off. Yeah. I've dropped off the earth in the last two years during the pandemic. I'm like, what bands even exist anymore? I don't know. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I want to. I, I want to know mo- more about this. So yeah, if you come yeah. This way, we have to hang out for sure. I think so too. Yes. Uh, okay. So, so what else is coming up for you? Like, what do you want to? What do you want to tell people is coming up? And then, like, you want to share your contact information with folks? Sure. Where, so, where they can um, best reach you? Uh, so. Coming up is uh, the release of 
my album called What Remains. And that'll be coming out in early June, but we'll have some singles coming out in April and May as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, my band Eep is going to be performing live here in El Paso uh, at the end of April alongside some really great uh, shoegaze bands. And uh, we're super excited about that. And basically, you can reach me at either Rosie Varela at Facebook, uh, the Rosie Varela Project. At Facebook. Also, our label is Ogar Records, and we can be reached at ogarrecords at gmail.com. And I have an Instagram for Rosie Varela Project and for EEP on all the all the social media sites. Cool. I'll put all that in the show notes as well. And your Star Trek article. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, and our band camp. <laughs> I keep forgetting. Oh, we yeah, have band, band camp. camps. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, our Bandcamp for Eep is eepshoegaze.bandcamp.com and uh, Rosie Varela Project is thervp.bandcamp.com. Oh, this has been so much fun. <laughs> this has been awesome. Yay. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. This has been really fun and I hope you have a good afternoon. And you. Rosie is the best. That was a fabulous conversation. I hope you took away a lot from it. And uh, if you did, I also hope you check out her music and everything else that she has to offer, which is a lot. You can check out the show notes for all of that. Today, I'm going to talk about something that has perplexed me for some time. And this is a phenomenon that I am deeming the pedal lady problem. So many male pedal builders put women on their pedals. And I know what you're thinking. Hillary, you're always complaining that there isn't enough representation in the industry. Well, this is not what I'm talking about. I will add that you also see this phenomenon a bit on guitars or other gear, though less so. Um, And I would argue and, you know, that this is also reflected in artwork and merch like t-shirts and things like that as well. But we are talking about musical instrument industry, so I'm going to focus on the most common offender that I see, which is pedals. All right, so there's so much competition from companies in the effects space that folks are regularly like clamoring to come up with eye-catching graphics to draw attention. And honestly, I am a real sucker for a nice-looking pedal, so I know it works. But in doing so, many pedal builders have leaned into some gender stereotypical tropes and sometimes outright objectification in their graphics. Before I get into these specific tropes, I also want to point out the irony of women being imagery on pedals themselves on the floor as literal stomp boxes. And while they're not represented on stages in workforce, in companies, artist rosters, but maybe that's another conversation. All right, with that, I'm sharing seven common tropes that are frequently featured in pedal imagery. So number one, the overtly sexy lady. This is pretty clear. Usually involves a woman in some sort of sexualized pose or in perhaps very little clothing. That one is pretty straightforward. Number two, quote unquote artistic lady. This is usually the least defensive of the bunch. It might involve a woman who looks like a witch or a sorcerer or involves some abstract imagery that just kind of looks cool. This is generally fine, but 
uh, and sometimes, you know, I, I actually really like it, but but it's often still presented through some sort of male gaze, and that's when things become a problem. And a red alarm bell rings for me when the company only features women on their pedals, like no men, or if no women work at their company. So that could be a problem. So something to, to you know, just check out. Three, the sexy violent lady. This is imagery that involves a woman with a sword or a gun or engaged in some other sort of violence, but also usually it's seen as somewhat sexual in nature, right? So like kind of like almost like a Kill Bill kind of phenomenon. Four, violence done to lady. This is the flip side when a woman is featured with like her head cut off, for example, or some sort of violence is being done to her. This is, you can see this a lot in like kind of metal, metal oriented imagery, for example, not only, but that's, that's where I see it the most. Five, uh, (laughs) racist and sexist imagery of a lady. This is when there is a racist stereotype or some sort of cultural appropriation going on in the pedal imagery. And I see this most often with uh, imagery of Asian women where they're presented as like cool and like supposedly like quote unquote exotic. This is problematic for a number of reasons, but especially when the builder isn't from that culture, right? Six, making fun of a lady. This is when the woman is presented as ugly or gross or otherwise in some way that is supposed to be making a joke sort of like on her behalf. Seven, body part of a lady. This imagery is sort of the next level of objectification that I mentioned in number one, when someone is so blatantly objectifying that they only use a body part in the image. So usually it's like legs or boobs or butt. And uh, bonus, or I guess like negative points, if the LED is nipples or something like that, (laughs) of course. So (laughs) you might be asking yourself after hearing this, when is it okay to put a woman on a pedal? First of all, if you are a woman or the vast majority of your employees are women, (laughs) fine. And some of this imagery might be actually fine if a woman is doing it. It just reads differently. The meaning is different, okay? Two, after asking at least 10 women of differing backgrounds their opinion about the pedal imagery, who you don't know, that's it. Just ask. It will help. Uh, And, you know, you should probably be doing this for everything. I would recommend for all pedal imagery, even if it doesn't feature a woman. Um, And and I would say expand it beyond just women into, you know, trans non-binary folks, making sure there's a range of BIPOC folks. Interviews or focus groups are really helpful in averting some sort of problem that might come up. And they're also great for like testing, just like R&D generally. Um, so getting the, getting your pedals out or your other gear out to people, as many range of people as possible, it never hurts, right? It's always good to get a wide range of feedback and paying them for their time as well. So all of those things are important. It If most of your imagery features men, and, you know, this imagery of a woman is presented significantly differently than the men with regard to power dynamics or sexual innuendo. That's another thing just to note that that might be a, a, a red alert, that another red alert that something might be a problem. And, you know, you probably heard me talk about pedal names in the past as well. And I think most of that follows a sort of similar guideline. So just ask, right? Unless your goal is to alienate people, in which case I'm not sure why you're listening to this podcast. Perhaps you got lost and you need to rethink your life choices. 
and I'm sorry someone hurt you. Uh, all right. Once again, I, and I know I've been talking mostly about pedals here throughout this discussion, but I think all of this applies to pretty much all music-related imagery. So it's we're talking specifically of pedals, but also guitars, stickers, T-shirts, album covers, whatever it might be, right? All of this is important. Get people's opinions before putting it out in the world. All right. With that, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share it with others. And thanks for listening. Oh, my God.